Good morning and welcome into the Daniel Orman Show. It is Daniel Orman coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. West Coast wake-up call and all time zones in between and around the world. Good morning, good morning, good morning. Thanks for tuning in. We really do appreciate it. We are really, really excited uh, to have a, an all-female lineup this week uh, as we kick off the 2019 World Cup. This is the women's edition of the World Cup taking place in France. Kicked off on Friday with the host country, the French women's national team, uh, just looking brilliant and dangerous uh, definitely one of the teams to watch in this tournament. Um, it was uh, it was a it was a really good day for them. They were they were very very impressive. Over the weekend, there there the rest of the tournament began to kick off. Uh, still not through the opening round that that uh, goes through. I believe tomorrow as uh, this World Cup is is still kicking off, and so we wanted to honor that. And, and celebrate that uh, by having an all-women's lineup. Today, we have Kat Nichols on the show. Tuesday, Haley Carter. Wednesday, Jess Nash. Thursday, Yael Averbush-West. And on Friday, Nicole Rodriguez. So we've got a full week, busy week with these ladies coming on the show. And we're going to go through all kinds of aspects of women's soccer, youth development, the World Cup, etc. So look forward to all of these conversations. And uh, today, Kat Nichols will be joining us in just a few minutes uh, to, to talk about uh, her work in the Birmingham, Alabama area, but also just giving some insight in, into the women's game and the, and the development of future um, players that uh, will aspire one day to hopefully be a part of the women's national team or future professionals, etc. So uh, looking forward to chatting with her here in just a few minutes. Also this weekend, there were other action taking place. Um, you had uh, yesterday the UEFA uh, Nations League final in Portugal hosted uh, and, and playing was, was the Portuguese national team who were victorious against the Netherlands. I uh, was rooting for the Netherlands in that match. Uh, didn't quite go their way, uh, but it was, it was definitely a high-quality match, and the, the, the level of play was, was really, really good. I, I felt like the Dutch were a little bit off in their tactical plan in the final third and it cost them um but both teams you know looked really good very dangerous portugal pulling out uh, the the final on home soil one to zero uh so that you know was was a really good game to watch and uh going on at the same time was another match a a friendly between the u.s and venezuela um what a mess. What a mess. You know, all of this time was taken. We had a year uh, that was was taken from the time uh, of Bruce Arena and this whole, um, you know, debacle 
of not fa- you know failing to, to qualify for the World Cup and all this stuff take place. And and Bruce was brought in as a stopgap, so it really goes beyond that that time with Bruce. Uh, it goes back to Klinsman, and 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 so the the name that that immediately was put forward because his brother is is a, an executive with U.S. Soccer. Uh, Jay Berhalter was the name Greg Berhalter, who at the time uh, was the the coach for the Columbus Crew, that is the Major League Soccer franchise in Columbus, Ohio. And this name was just talked about over and over again. Like this was the the guy. This was the number one candidate. This was in, in many conversations around U.S. soccer was talked about as the only candidate that U.S. soccer were actually interested in hiring, that, that the process was already done, but they were just trying to wait it out to, to let the steam die down, to let the heat uh, subside so that when they announced it, it, it would not be a big controversy. Everyone uh, seemed to roll their eyes they knew that it was, you know, as much as U.S. soccer was trying to act as if this was a thorough search and blah, blah, blah. Everyone could see through the smoke screen um, that this was nothing more than an effort to put lipstick on a pig and um, and cover up the fact that this was a was a done deal uh, for a long time. And and uh, so Greg comes in and this is not this is this is. This hiring of Greg Berhalter, it, it, this is not to say anything personal about Greg as a person or anything like that. Uh, I, I, I want to, you know, state that publicly. I, I'm not in the person bashing business um, at all. Um, and, and so I, I'm just talking about the mechanics of the hire and and the process and all of that. And in looking at all that process and looking at everything, there's a couple points that, that I think we, we, we need to come to understand. The issues we're seeing with the U.S. men's national team are all self-inflicted. Every single problem we have is a problem of our own making. This is not to say that Greg Berhalter was or was not the right choice to coach this team. Um, the issue goes far beyond Greg Berhalter. You could have put any coach in that spot, and they're still going to be struggling to reach the level of expectations, to reach the the level of our potential. And the reason are self-inflicted. The reasons are self-inflicted. For example, number one, the biggest, biggest issue that we have in all of soccer and this goes for the U.S. women's national team that's playing in the World Cup right now, and the pipeline of players that comes after this generation of players retires. It, it, it is the U.S. men's national team. It is our youth national teams. It is our entire system and in, in in the structure that U.S. soccer has embraced. And that, that U.S. soccer uh, structure that they have embraced is a, is a structure that has a philosophy and a mindset of exclusion. And, and, and that mindset of exclusion means that opportunity is limited, access is limited. It means that gatekeepers make arbitrary decisions on who gets in and who's left out. It means that if you're a kid growing up in Birmingham, Alabama, that you 
likely have to leave and move somewhere else, states away, hours away, just to get a chance. In a country like the United States, we're not talking about a country that is poor, that lacks resources, that lacks, you know, the the ability to build a business anywhere. The United States allows for any person that has a dream to build that dream right where you are. There is no law in this country that says because there is a McDonald's in your town, you can't build your own hamburger restaurant. There is no law in this in this country that says that it, 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 if if Kentucky Fried Chicken was was established in your city, had a, had a had a restaurant in your city that you can't build your own chicken restaurant. You can do whatever you want and you can go head to head in your city. And and if you're good enough and you beat Kentucky Fried Chicken or you beat McDonald's, you can expand and you can continue to grow and you can build your company and you can go head to head across your state, across your country, across this region. You can build towards global dominance as the greatest restaurant in the world. That is not allowed in soccer. And because we don't have that system and structure, our players, our coaches, our clubs suffer from limited access and limited opportunity. They also suffer from limited competition. And that competition goes beyond just dog-eat-dog on the field as clubs battling it out to see who gets to play in what league based on on on-field results, not backroom buyouts or arbitrary decisions or who has the deepest pockets. But it also goes into the competition that the players experience on a day-in, day-out basis. It's important to remember that U.S. soccer has deemed that our best league can run in a way and stifle the market in a way where you have players on the field making less than $100,000 a year. And and, And when you have rosters that are filled out, Major League Soccer rosters that are filled out with players that are making under $100,000, Seeing the field each and every week, that caliber, that quality of player is nowhere near the global standard as a first division player. And therefore, even if you bring in a Zlatan Ibrahimovic, the disparity between his talent level, even at this age, and a $60,000 defender or goalkeeper or midfielder, the gulf between that quality level is so big that you see on the field the disparity. You see on the field the lack of quality. And you see on the field the lack of, com- of competitiveness. And it affects our national team. So our issues are self-inflicted. Our issues are issues of our own making. Now, roster selections, tactical decisions, yes, those are are part of of Burhalter's control. Those are things that that he can he can do differently. He left off a player 
who who is a is a good finisher. He's a good striker. He's young. He's playing in Germany. Josh Sargent. He wasn't allowed to go play with the U twenty World Cup team that just lost this weekend in Poland in in the U twenty World Cup. And so everyone, because because he was brought into the senior national team, everyone was like, okay, well at least he's going to get competitive minutes in the Gold Cup this summer. And then he's not even put on the roster. And then we watch a game like yesterday, and and you just see the lack of quality all over the field, and especially up top at the center forward center forward position. And it hurts us. It hurts the men's national team. And and so those decisions, yes, those are of uh, of Greg Berhalter's own making. But the system itself, the structure itself, is the larger macro issue that's affecting all of this because it affects the player pool, and and we just don't have the players that are are being produced and developed in this country in an environment that are ready to shine even in a friendly against Venezuela. It's ridiculous. It's embarrassing to lose three to zero um, yesterday. I mean, that game could have easily been six, seven, eight to zero if Venezuela were 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 in a knockout round match. That's the difference in quality yesterday. It was a friendly and Venezuela basically pulled up at three to zero. If they would have gone for blood, it could have been double that easy. So this idea that our national teams are, you know, especially on the men's side are, are getting better. It's obvious. I mean, second home game in a row, the men's national team is booed. That's a problem and we've got to fix it and fix it fast um it's 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 ridiculous that we live in a country like this and and we have a system that is so restrictive that limits opportunity and it and it is hurting us it is hurting us and we've got to get better we have to change that in order for us to really be able to realize our potential the sponsor uh, for, for this half hour is Duck Kick Brand. If you don't know about Duck Kick Brand, visit them at D-U-T-K-I-G brand.com. They have very, very cool products there that allow you to, to, to coach the game, be a player in the game, develop. Um, whether, you, whether you're a youth player, whether you're an adult player, they, uh, they even have, uh, you know, cards uh, like these where 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 you have um, you know printed on the cards um, the these uh, flashcards or, or postcard size cards uh, soccer fields where you can kind of draw up formations and play I mean it's it's built for you if you are a soccer coach or soccer player you should check out their products at duckkickbrand.com and if you go there uh, when you go to place an order, use the promo code DWSHOW. Again, that is DWSHOW, and you'll get 10% off your order, plus you'll support this show at the same time, which we think is pretty cool. So, again, the sponsor is Duck Kick Brand. Learn more about them. Visit their store at DuckKickBrand.com. We will be right back after this with Cat Nichols. Stay tuned.
Welcome back into the show this Monday morning, June the 10th. We are excited to have joining us this morning, Kat Nichols, the Girls Director of Coaching and Girls College Liaison for Vestavia Hills Soccer Club, located in the Birmingham, Alabama area. Kat, welcome to the show. Hey, Daniel. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So um, give us a little bit of background. Where did you grow up and, and you know, what kind of clicked for you, this, this love of the game that you wanted to, to stay involved with the game as you, as you continued uh, even after your playing career? Yeah, so I grew up in Grapevine, Texas. It's a little suburb right outside the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Um, played since I was little. Um, my sister can probably attest that I was the annoying little sister that tagged along to every game and wanted to be just like my big sister. So I started playing, um, eventually followed my dream of playing college soccer over here to the Birmingham area where I played at Sanford University under the guidance of Todd Yelton, Jay Yelton, and Brian Copham. Um, and it was, I've always loved the game. Like there's just something about it, about the lessons it teaches you about just competing and like giving it everything you have and like always knowing that you, there's something to improve on. Um, so my senior year of college, I ended up getting hurt, um, tore my ACL. So I was out. I'd already played too many games start, um, in the college season. So I couldn't redshirt. So from there, I just kind of hung out on the bench. Like I sat as close as I could to my coaches and was at every training session, was asking questions. And I was like, this is, I'm not ready to be done. Like, this is not okay. Ending my career this way. There's so much more this game has to offer me and offer people around me like what else can I do and that's kind of when I fell in love with the idea of coaching even though it kind of scared me I didn't know where I wanted to be I knew I loved working with kids and had a passion and growing and developing kids and specifically like females just having a female role model because I think as a female player there aren't a ton of female coaches I only ever played for one my entire time growing up and playing so the idea of being able to be that role model in the game for other girls, other aspiring players kind of hit home. And I just kind of grabbed on to what Coach Elton and Coach Coplin were saying. And I asked some questions and kind of when the fire lit inside of me, like, this is what I want to do. I want to follow this passion. I want to follow this dream to be an influencer in the game, specifically the women's game, but also be an influencer and impact these kids' lives, hopefully for the better. And so I just, just started running with it, and it's 15 years in the making, and I'm still going, and I still love it more and more every day. So your time getting into, you know, changing out from being a player to a coach, when you when you first started getting into coaching, what were you mainly coaching girls' teams, and what was the connection like between you and the girls? Did they did did you did you sense that they were um, recognizing that that role model type uh, relationship in, you know, that was kind of naturally available to them in looking to you as their coach? Yeah, it was kind of interesting. Like, I got thrown into it, and I was, to be honest, I was scared. I'm like, I don't know what I'm doing. I got these, I think there were U11s at the time. I was like, I have no idea what to do with them, so I'm just going to go through, like, old things I remember 
And as I started to get to know him, it, it almost was like I became more of a big sister. Um, so I don't, I didn't really think of myself as a role model. Like they were, they kind of became family. Like their families took me in as like a, a mentor for their kids, but they were kind of like aunts and uncles to me because I didn't have my family here because they were in Dallas. So it was kind of nice knowing that they were always watching out for me, but my team, my very first team, it, they felt more like kid sisters to me than like somebody I was inspiring and being a role model to like in that moment, I wouldn't have thought like, Hey, that I'm somebody that these kids could look up to. I was just trying to be like more of a big sister type role. Like, Hey, this is, you probably shouldn't say that you probably shouldn't do that. But like looking back on it now, I still have relationships with a bunch of those players. Still talk to a bunch of them and knowing like, Hey, I'm, I may have actually made an impact and actually been more of a role model than you ever thought. Cause I don't think for me anyways, like there's times where I'm like, okay, I have to be like, you know, you're kind of that role model. They're looking at you. But when you're kind of in the moment, when I was a young coach starting out, I felt more of, oh, they're like my kids' sisters. And so there was that fine line of like kind of kidding around, joking around and practices wouldn't be as serious. And then you have to like lay the hammer down because like, oh, we have to work. Like, we got work to do. We can't goof off anymore. So learning that, like how to tiptoe that line of like, I'm here for you. We can talk. I want to support you. But at the same time, I'm your coach. Um, that took me a while to figure out how to work. I mean, I'm still trying to figure it out, but I think I've gotten better as the years have kind of gone on through the coaching experience. So com- coming into coaching, you, you said that you, you were trying to, you know, draw on your past experience as a player uh, to, you know, look for resources or experience or drills, sessions, uh, maybe a philosophy of play, et cetera. Ultimately, kind of getting thrown in, in into the deep end and saying, "All right, you know, here's a team, make something happen." You know, figure figure out how to coach. What what was that experience like for you in terms of having to figure that out on the fly? And also, with that, where did you turn after you got into it in terms of coaching education? What were some inspirations or models or coaching philosophies that you you started to lean into to pattern your own coaching after yeah so when I first started the first club I was at um I was literally so scared to coach my first team like what if the players didn't like me what if I wasn't good enough like the constant doubt that runs through people's heads because I'm a pleaser like I want people at that point I wanted people to like me I wanted the people to be as good as they could be but I didn't know how to do it so I was like well what drills did I like as a player in college well I'm coaching 11 year old girls they're probably not gonna like the same thing I did so just trying to figure out um that how to kind of work through that I had a few really good friends that coached on the boys side one of them was the director of the club at that point that kind of walked me through how to do certain things. And like, he kind of mentored me through, um, I watched a bunch of his sessions, but I still didn't really have like my own ideas, my own philosophy. I just kind of, as all soccer coaches do, like steal sessions from other people, but I never really made the session my own. So I'm, it was after I'd left that club, I had, 
gone on to a different club in the Birmingham area. And that's when I found the David Copeland Smith with Beast Mode Soccer. And I had also found 343. Um, I'd taken some U.S. coaching. I took my B license at, or my, not my B, sorry, my D license at that point, taking my youth national. Like it was all like some good stuff, but it didn't, I didn't know how to translate what I had learned onto the field to get these players to do what we're trying to get them to do. So through, I kind of mesh, started learning how to mesh like what David Copeland Smith did with Beast Mode Soccer as well with what the guys from 343 were doing. And I kind of meshed it and was like, I can make this my own, pulling different things from both of these people. And my first team at this new club, we had Beast Mode Mondays where all we did was one player, one ball. They all had a little skill ball. They all had a size four. We were doing different stuff in the box. And then it was all like 1v1 in a box. And then Tuesdays was more like your technical building out of the back tactical Tuesdays and then Thursdays we played and I started kind of to develop my own style my own sense of like play my own sense of this is how I want to train these players and it was a struggle at first to get kids to buy in but once they bought in they were on fire for it they improved their love of the game improved like I was getting text messages from parents of videos what did you do to my kid? And it's a, it's a video of like the kid out and pouring down rain doing beast mode touches or passing off the wall and working on different things we had worked on. They're like, I don't know what you did, but she loves it more than she ever had. And that's when I knew I kind of had something going, like I can be different in this area because I have this kind of style going and this is what I want to do. And I want to put a stamp on it and kind of make it my own. So it's kind of where I was, it probably took a good seven years to kind of start figuring my own, my own style out, my own philosophy out, the kind of coach I wanted to be. It took a while to get to the point I'm at now, I feel like. So when you're, when you're looking at developing a player, you're looking at developing them on an individual basis, uh, on a, in a, in a group, bases group training or group environment uh aspect as well in order to to build what your philosophy and 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 goal is ultimately which is the service of the team you're developing the individual but you're also developing you know a group of players for a team um which is it's kind of merging those two worlds right beast mode and the Mm -hmm. technical and the individual and, and and becoming you know superior technically uh, but also then looking at a lot of the tactical and in the three four three philosophy of of possession based or or a positional play based uh, methodology and philosophy as well. Mm-hmm. Taking that and in, in merging those two, what did you see in those players specifically that? lit a fire under them was it the confidence on the ball and at the same time having more confidence in kind of knowing where they needed to be on the field when they needed to be there so they they felt more comfortable both individually but also tactically you know what do you think led to that um aspect of those parents you know sending you that feedback saying you know that they're they're they they won't stop, right? They're just wanting to continue to play and train and love the game. 
was it building that confidence as an individual, but also as a member of the team that you think led to feeding that fire in those players? Yeah, I think building the confidence on the ball and like the confidence of it's okay to make a mistake. Um, So being on the ball and if you make a mistake, my big thing was like, it's fine, but what are you going to do to fix it? How are you going to win the ball back? what are you going to try next time? Like, how are you going to fix that mistake? And like hammering at home and practice, like, I don't care if you make mistakes, like that's how you learn. Be confident in yourself, but don't let mistakes define you either, which I think that was the big kind of click for them. Like they would be, we'd be possessing pretty. And like all of a sudden outside back goes on a dribble and she does something. And like, I remember vividly this one girl, outside back makes a run overlapping run for we play her the ball she does like an in-in croquetta around somebody crosses it we don't score but like she comes around back and she's like oh my gosh did you see it did you see it i did it i did it like that's the point like that's what i want out of them like i want them to be excited that they can try things and accomplish things and succeed and now once we've got that and you're comfortable on the ball, like the rest kind of starts filtering in. And that's, I think that was the most important thing for me is building that confidence on the ball, but also building like that safety net of it's okay to make mistakes. Cause I feel like, I don't know around the rest of the world, around the rest of the country, but like our kids are so like, we have to be perfect. We all have to make all A's. We have to take AP classes. We have to be perfect on the ball. We have to be perfect here. Like, be okay to make a mistake because in those moments of mistakes is where you learn and grow as a person, as a player. And once they were comfortable enough knowing that I'm not going to scream and yell at them if they make a mistake, as long as they're working to fix it and they don't just give up and quit, then we're fine. And I think once they got that concept of they're comfortable on the ball, but they're comfortable, like if they make a mistake and they they're comfortable, like knowing you're not going to get in trouble. There's not, there's going to be repercussions as long as you work you're fine. I think that's when everything starts to filter in and build and you can build off of that. But if a kid can't play with confidence and they're not confident on the ball and they play in fear of making mistakes, it makes everything a lot harder down the road, especially as you get into the more tactical side of the game. How much does confidence play into or factor into uh, a player's commitment level and enjoyment of the game um a thousand percent i don't i don't feel like if you have a player that's not super confident and you're not trying to do things to build their confidence up as a coach they're not going to enjoy coming out to practice they're not going to enjoy playing in games they're going to be afraid to make mistakes so they're never going to want to be on the ball So I think it's a big factor. Like if you can't play with confidence and play fearless of if I make a mistake, it's okay, I can fix it, then you're always going to play in fear and it's never going to work out well and you're always going to – I feel like you'll always feel defeated. So I think being confident is a big deal and I think we have to do a better job of establishing that in players, whether male or female. I'm thinking mostly from the female side because I've never coached male but giving them the confidence to be on the ball, to be around other players, to be okay with who they are and the style of player they are is a big deal. I think mental makeup and, and confidence is a, is a big part of this, is, is one of the 
often overlooked aspects of player development, especially here in the U.S., um, you see it kind of more organically, naturally, like, uh, you know, pick up basketball culture and in, right. in, in that urban environment, you know, playing pick up basketball, you, you have to develop a thick skin uh, in that context. And, and I've had this conversation with, with my own kids. You look at some players that are really, really good players, world class level players and one of the things I, I've talked to them about is if that player didn't have that level of confidence in themselves, that self-confidence, you, would, you wouldn't know their name. Not because they are not talented or not good players, but that confidence translates into trying what for many players would, would, would be deemed impossible you know, trying an impossible shot or trying that 1v1 or making that pass when no one else would dare to make that pass is what sets some of these players off or, or, or aside as, as a as world-class, next-level type of player. That confidence is such a key component of that. And, and so building that and being cognizant of that in developing young players, uh, I think, is a piece that's, that's overlooked uh, in in youth development in America. Now, you you are the director of coaching for the Vestavia Hills Soccer Club on the girls' side, the girls' director of coaching. Mm-hmm. So wearing that DOC hat, you're, you're now responsible for multiple teams and coaches and a, and a way of, uh, of play, a philosophy of play, and, and building uh, a, a culture around, you know, um, a, a playing philosophy, et cetera, in, in all of your teams. What what have you learned and what challenges have you had in, in taking what you have done personally as a coach with your own teams and now you're you're a director of coaching and figuring out ways to 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 influence culture and coaching across multiple teams and, and teams that you may not personally be responsible for as the coach of that team yeah so this is going to be my first like real season as the director of coaching for their girls side I got promoted in February I believe so I had a little bit of work with it in the spring Um, but the biggest thing I've I feel like is going to be influencing the coaches and like getting the coaches on board with how to talk to players, how to handle players, like really, especially because we're mostly like we're a youth club. Most of the younger coaches coach our younger teams where our older teams are basically taken between like me and two other coaches that have been established. They've been around the game for a while. Um, so that, I'm in constant communication with them and just kind of leading by example, like, Hey, come out to my session. Um, there was one coach who she, this is going into her second year. I invited her out to the session and I was like, okay, after the session was over, I'm like, all right, what'd you think? And she's like, what do you mean? I was like, well, that session was crap. Like the session was horrible. There's 8 million things I would have done differently. Tell me what you think. Like, you're not going to hurt my feelings. Tell me what you think. How would you have done that session differently? How would you have interacted with this player differently that was struggling? So starting to make coaches more cognizant of 
those issues and how to handle certain situations and how to build up players, I think is the start one, because it's really, it's hard to get your hand on and influence 10 different teams when that have 12 to 18 players, depending on the age group, but to influence the coach and mentor the coach first, I think is going to be a big deal. Cause if I can mentor them and help shape them and help mold them and get them on the same page and then be at training sessions, help kind of guide them help. I want it to be a two way street, like a communication. They come to me with questions. I can play 50 questions with them. They come to my session. They go ahead and blast me. Like put me on blast. I don't mind. Like that's how I'm going to learn. Um, I think that's a big proponent of starting to develop the character and the confidence in these younger kids is to establish it within the coaches first. And then the coaches will then trickle down to what the players want to do. In our current system, um, we have players that grow up in places like Birmingham, Alabama, who often are looking to really are forced to look to leave in order to get better opportunities, bigger opportunities. We had two players from the Birmingham area that were on the U.S. U-20 World Cup uh, boys uh, youth national team uh, mm-hmm. that that just finished up this past weekend losing uh, in Poland. Um, and both of those players that were grew up in Birmingham had to leave and go to Texas uh, to to try to get better opportunities. And eventually Chris Richards was able to even parlay his time in Texas into an opportunity with Bayern Munich in Germany. Right. Um, our Our system uh, here in the U S means that there are large parts of the country that don't have the same levels of access and opportunity. What do you guys experience there in the Birmingham area with Vestavia in terms of access and opportunity, you know, for girls, um, how, how do you go about trying to get them seen maybe for colleges um, maybe it's, it's ODP, maybe it's development Academy, you know, what, what are you, what are you guys programming wise or, you know, scheduling wise opportunity wise try to do in terms of providing more access and opportunity for your players? Yeah. So I think going like just providing like as competitive as a training environment, as we can, but as we start to develop, like we, Atlanta and Birmingham area has kind of started this new league, the SCCL. So you have the top hats, the Concords, the UFAs, even CISOs in it, um, us, and then our, another club within the Birmingham area, and just trying to raise a level of competition that these girls get in front of, and then trying to get them to the bigger name tournaments where you know colleges are going to be. And for me, as acting as a girls college liaison as well, is just being in constant contact with college coaches, calling them, emailing them, like, hey, I've got this player, or hey, she was at your camp. What did you think? What do you like, What do you need from me to help develop her? Like, I know you're interested. What is she missing? What can we refine? 
So there's a bunch of different things going into it. I think there's a ton of moving parts, but just trying to develop a training environment first and foremost that makes them compete at the highest level possible and then trying to get them in front of the highest level competition as we can, whether it's getting going to regionals or one of our girls teams won the STCL. So they're going to the U.S. US Club National Cup in Colorado, which they're going to play some pretty strong teams there. If it's going to Disney and trying to get in the top flight and play solid teams there in front of coaches, I'm just trying to expose them as much as possible. But I also think it kind of starts with your training environment. If you don't train them in an environment where they're competing at a high level on a daily basis, it doesn't matter what league you play in. If you can't compete at a high level, you can go to nationals and not be able to compete because you're not used to competing at that level day in and day out. So if we can kind of mimic that in our training sessions, make them compete, have that competitive environment and then expose them as much as possible and be in constant contact. I think we're going to set our girls up for a pretty good chance to be exposed to a higher level, whether it's college, whatever their college aspirations are. And if they want to go bigger than college and they want to go over, like I would love to have girls that want to go over to try to play at city or Leon or Byron on the girl side, like wherever they want to go, like let's try to open doors to make that happen. And I'm not above putting my ear to the phone and start calling people that I don't know and be like, Hey, this is who I am. And this is what I'm trying to do. What do you suggest? Like, how would, how can I get a girl? She wants to go to, wherever and play overseas what's the step you've done it before how how did you get that contact so just trying to put myself out there as much as I can to help benefit our players is another avenue as well I think the women's game is is growing uh in, in especially in certain parts of the world Europe being probably the biggest area where it's where it's really really um becoming a big priority for countries like england scotland's putting uh some focus there spain uh france um there there are places in france uh where where it's been a, a priority for a while but the the areas in europe that have a you know traditional soccer culture football culture um, you know, are starting to, to take the women's game seriously um, and put money and and we're seeing attendance in some of the matches, um, which which is just incredible to see. Um, watching that from afar and seeing that, um, are any of your players looking at that, aspiring, going, I would love to be a professional player and go play there? Or is the main conversation just college? You know, what are you hearing from your players as they're starting to see that some of the the, the places in, uh, around the world start to take the game, you know, serious uh, and put resources uh, into the women's game? I wish part of me, like, I don't think like the European League, like the women's games, like we don't really get access to them here. Um, so I don't think a lot of our girls know, like, this is a possibility. Like, they know, like, Huran did it and Tobin did it if they know who those players are. But I feel like the younger kids, their goal, of course, is always, like, I want to be on the national team. But I think 
like trying to get them to watch the game, like our women's professional league here that it's was on lifetime for a while. And now it's kind of harder to see the games, but they don't really talk about those things. Cause I don't really know that a lot of players necessarily know they exist. Um, they know that college level exists. Like if you're like dove in, infiltrated in like the world of soccer, like you probably know, like Barcelona has a women's side, Byron has a women's side, PSG has a women's side, like all these things have like women's sides of the game, but it's not, so many things are so readily available for kids like on TV that if they don't see it in front of them, I think it's kind of a far off thing. So I feel like if we could actually start it here, like we have our women's programs here, like we have the Portland Thorns, we have the Houston Dash, we have Orlando Pride, all of those like North Carolina Curs. If we had more access to that, like on the women's side, I would love to be able to take one of my teams over to watch any of them play. I just don't have access to it. So we have Atlanta United, but that's a male's program. We have the Birmingham Legion here in town, but that's a men's program. So that's all these things for men, but there's not a lot of avenue on the women's side. Like, Hey, look at what these girls can do. It's, Oh, I want to be on the national team or I want to play college soccer, which are both great. And you should aspire to do that. But there's also other things that I don't think our girls are getting exposed to because it's just not available. Like you can't turn on the TV and see a North Carolina courage game where I can turn on the TV and see at Atlanta United men's game, which is fine kind of, but if we want the women's game to grow, we have to have access to those things so that our kids are seeing it. Our kids are trying to imitate that player. Like, Oh, there's Tobin. Heath. she just schooled like eight people up the side. I want to be her but they don't necessarily get to see them unless the world, the women's national team is on TV or the offshoot that your parents know that you can download an app and watch the women's professional league, whether it's in Europe or it's here play from an app on your phone. So we have to find a way to get that more exposed to our kids so that they actually know that that, that's a possibility for these kids, whether it's in Birmingham, Alabama, or it's across the country. We just have to be able to expose them a little bit more to that, I feel like. As you're seeing the women's gr- women's game grow and, and be taken more serious uh, around the world, um, what are some of the, the challenges you're seeing here in the States in terms of, you know, the U.S. Women's National Team program has traditionally been you know, the best of the best around the world. And now these other countries are starting to put resources uh, into the women's game. And, you know, you've talked a little bit about access and, and being able to watch or, or proximity, getting to, to take a team and actually in-person experience, um, you know, the women's game at the highest level domestically. What are some of the challenges you see coming up over the next 5, 10, 15 years for American soccer on the women's side of the ledger in terms of growing the game, uh, developing better players, uh, you know, developing, let's say, the next generation of Carly Lloyds and Alex Morgans and, you know, Tobin Heaths that, you know, right now they may be 8, 9, 10, 12, 13 years old. You know, what are some of those challenges as you look ahead over the next 5, 10, 15 years 
in the U.S. soccer landscape that that we need to address to get better so that we can stay at or near the top? Uh, I feel like a big thing is, like, I just don't feel like kids watch the game. I think I feel like there's 9 million different things I could say right now. Um, but the couple of things that come to mind of like our kids don't watch the game enough, whether it's women's game, men's game, going out to local college games, they don't, it's, so it's that exposure thing again, like they don't see the game enough. They don't see the Carly Lloyds or the Tobin Heath or the Alex Morgan, except for when the national team is on TV. But what about when they're playing with their respective club teams here how are you able to emulate what they do? Are you watching the game? Are you able to like see if you're a number six, are you able to watch Julie Ertz now with the Chicago red stars and see her play as well? She's, I think she's a center back for them, but kind of find those different areas, but at the same time, like building their love of the game and like them want to be on the ball, like instead of playing Fortnite or whatever kids play on the Xbox, for two hours like sure play it like still be a kid but can you spend 30 minutes outside on the ball touching the ball and it not necessarily be in a structured environment where there's a coach constantly tell them what to do more of the like you alluded to the pickup basketball kind of thing like you can drive around and see basketball courts or find a gym and there's people playing pickup basketball but you don't really see kids out on the street like just playing soccer or go to a park and there's a kid playing soccer you just don't see that as much and I think that's a big miss like kids just need to play whether it's structured unstructured spend time on the ball if we don't keep kids doing that and then keep the game in front of them and have those aspiring players like Mallory Pugh she's super young she's been able to do these things like watch her or go out to like UCLA with Jesse Fleming. Like she's an incredible soccer player watching emulate her, but are we setting our kids up to be able to do those things? And if they're stuck inside most of the day, they're at school for eight hours, then they have three structured, sometimes only two structured practices a week. Are we ever going to build them to get to that level to be able to continue to compete with the rest of the world? If, they don't have that fire lit inside them to take 30 minutes on a Wednesday when they don't have soccer practice to go play or call the friends down the street and be like, Hey, let's go in our my backyard and play, or let's meet at the school because we can all walk to it and let's just go play, whether it's world cup or chaos or power and finesse, like whatever it may be, like just go out and play, touch the ball and play, like be creative on the ball. If we don't do that, I don't think we're going to continue to improve at least in our area. So how do how do we get that culture and why do you think we don't have that pickup basketball culture right now regardless of whether it's boys or girls? That's a great question. If I only knew that, if I only knew the answer to that. I just don't I don't I feel like back when I was a kid, like obviously like the world has changed like I could be outside until the street lights came on, playing in the middle of the street, throwing the soccer ball on the roof and trying to trap it out of the air because I wanted to be Michelle Akers and really good at balls out of the air. 
where now like the world has completely changed and you have to watch every little thing because you never know who's lurking. Like that's kind of creepy to think about, but that's kind of our reality. So are there parks in like the middle of neighborhoods that kids can go to? Are parents willing to kind of step aside and be like, yeah, I know I just got home from work, but my kid really wants to go play. Can you go walk around the park while your kid's out playing soccer? Um, I just don't think that, like, I used to walk to the gym and play basketball with my friends, but I don't think kids just walk down to the gym because I don't think they're as readily necessarily available and the world just isn't as safe as it, I guess, once was. Maybe I just didn't know it wasn't safe and I'm an adult now, so I know those things. Um, But if I knew the answer to that, I feel like I could create that culture, but I feel like it's a trial by error and just try to continue to like drive the love of the game and the kids that I come in contact with and hope that it catches on and spreads like wildfire. So I don't really know that I actually have an answer for that one. Sorry. Well, well if you do, I'm sure you could uh, do, do a nice TV infomercial and for three easy, easy installments of 99.99, you can sell the cat Nichols soccer culture <laughs> system and uh and turn the turn turn that passion level up in communities all across this country for three easy payments of 99.99 right um <laughs> right you so great yeah absolutely so uh the world cups kicked off in france um the french national team had a big big victory to kick kick off the world cup on friday had some some really good matches over the weekend um, I personally love the way Spain play, and, and I think over the next 10 years, they are going to become uh, a power in women's soccer. I think very similar to, to uh, what we saw with the, the men's side for the Spanish national team um, it, around that 2008, 2010, 2012 era. Um, just mm-hmm. that culture that, that they are developing, the way that they're playing, they still seem m- maybe a little young, but you know right. that th- they are bringing in you know uh, through their, their their youth development um i think that over the next 10 years we're going to see them just continue to rise continue to grow uh so i was excited uh seeing them uh this weekend playing uh the the us national team kick off their campaign tomorrow against thailand what are you looking at um for for the us women's national team in this world cup um, you know, obviously a lot of people have picked them as favorites. Um, a lot of others have, have looked at France. Um, what, what are you seeing from the U S women's national team, um, in this world cup? I mean, I think we have the talent to be able to compete. Um, if we just settle back and play, like not get, like we have to use our players like a crystal Dunn or, a Tobin and a Megan up running across the front, Alex running across the front, like being able to use their strengths. But I think if we can settle into it, like there was a couple of like send off games where it just looked a little like frantic. And if I feel like if we settle down and play, we'll be able to compete. Um, I hope we do well. I want us to do well, but I am a, I really like the way France came out of the gate and opened up and played like Lissamere. Um, is amazing to me. Like the way she plays, her understanding of the game was spot on. I love the way watching her play. Um, but I'm also a big center back girl. 
So Renard playing for them in the back, like I think they're going to be really tough to beat. And I feel like when our women meet them, we have to be able to like settle down and play our game where if we get caught up in the hype of it and just play the whole kick and run or just try to play in behind every time that we're going to be in a lot of trouble. But I think we have the talent to do it. We just got to settle into it, keep the movement off the ball, use our players and getting getting in behind to our advantage. And it's not necessarily with the big ball over to the top, but the movement of the three up top when they're when they click, but that's a pretty powerful front line. And then having Julie Ertz come in there, Haran come in there through the midfield who flies through the air with the greatest of ease, it seems like, to win balls and put balls in the back of the net with her head. I think that can be a pretty dangerous front going for us if we if we settle down and play like we all know and hope they can well um we we will all be rooting and uh and hoping to uh, to see more success i do agree with you that it's going to be a challenge that french national team look legit and um right and so um and and having the benefit of being at home is also i think gonna the play into that as well in terms of just that extra little bit of something for that French national team. It's going to be a tough challenge if those two right. uh, meet up down the road at some point in this World Cup, but uh, we will be cheering them on. Look, Kat, thanks for coming on the show and joining us and kicking off our all-female lineup this week in honor of the Women's World Cup. And thank you for, uh, for, for kicking us off this Monday morning uh, and sharing your insights uh, into the game, into coaching, into being a, a director of coaching, the women's game itself. We really do appreciate you coming on. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. And here's to rooting for the U.S. that they can make it happen again. Absolutely. Uh, I, I second uh, second that. Uh, hope hope for a repeat. Hope for the best. Um, and again, Absolutely. thanks for thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. That was Kat Nichols, the girls director of coaching and girls college liaison for Vestavia Hill Soccer Club, located in the Birmingham, Alabama area. Um, look, the the women's game is growing across this country and uh and and it's growing across the world and um we've just got to continue to to do the things that we need to do to to keep up to to get better um in order for us to stay at the top and it's people like cat who are doing this work on the front lines each and every day that are going to help this next generation reach that level so Thanks to her and to all of our guests coming on this week as we look at the women's game and look at this Women's World Cup. Um, really excited to have this lineup this week and uh, and to get into all of these different aspects of the game. So our, our sponsor for this half hour is Charity Water. You can learn more about Charity Water at charitywater.org. We will be right back after this. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them, it changes everything. 
right? You could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. Thanks for tuning in this Monday morning, June the 10th. Thanks to Cat Nichols for coming on to the show. Um, you know, like we said, it's going to be a, a really big uh, week here on the show uh, as we are celebrating, kicking off the Women's World Cup that just began in France. Tomorrow, we have Haley Carter. Wednesday, Jess Nash. Thursday, Yael Averbush-West. And on Friday, Nicole Rodriguez. Uh, tune into the show each and every weekday at 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. You can also listen later on Apple Podcast. And we are updating other podcast services uh, this week as well to get the show active on all of those as well. So thanks for tuning in. As always, we will see you again tomorrow. <laughs>